everybody else, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew 27 this morning. Matthew 27. We're going to begin this morning just with the reading of the text, which is the first ten verses of this chapter. We are in now the second to the last chapter of this book that has been so instructive to me and so challenging in so many ways. Let me just set the uh, scene for you. Jesus is at this point in the story, he's in the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest, and there in his palatial home, Jesus was being interrogated off and on throughout the night by various parts of the Sanhedrin and on into the morning. And that's where we pick up the account in verse 1. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So now there's a meeting of the entirety of the Sanhedrin that had only met uh, partially throughout the night. And verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now there is, I think, a connection between these two paragraphs. If you notice, you've got verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 and following. But there is a connection between these two paragraphs that is not, I think, immediately apparent. If you'll notice in verse 2, It says that the chief priests and the elders, and you might want to underline this phrase, they delivered him over to Pilate. And then if you look down in verse 3, so now in the next paragraph, you actually have this same word, or a form of this same word. It's translated differently in the ESV here. It calls Judas his betrayer, right? You may want to underline that word as well. It's the same basic word. It's literally the one who delivered him over. Same as in verse 2. And then you actually have the same word again in verse 4. 
where Judas, after a bout of remorse, says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And that betraying, that's the third word to underline. Again, Matthew is making a verbal parallel between these two paragraphs so that he connects them. And the significance of that really is that this is the very term, this term for delivering over is the very term that our Lord had used in one, in, in one of his predictions about what would happen to him in the end. Remember that he had begun to tell them as far back at least as chapter 16, that he would go to Jerusalem, he would suffer many things, he would be crucified and killed, and even then he would be raised again. But in chapter 20, Jesus says this, in beginning in verse 18, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, and he used this very term, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Okay, now, we just read the account of the fulfillment of that, right? Jesus was delivered over to the chief priests and scribes by whom? By Judas. And then Jesus goes on and He says, and they will condemn Him to death. And He uses the term again in verse 19, and they will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. What I'm trying to point out is that this is an amazing prediction. Seven chapters earlier, a prediction by our Lord of his being delivered over first by one of his own to the Jewish authorities and then by the Jewish authorities to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And once again, we're reminded by this that none of these things is happening to Jesus and taking Him by surprise. Right? He's not caught off guard. Christ, our Savior, is going into this thing with eyes wide open. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He is going to that cross intentionally, determinedly. He is going to lay down His life. No one will take it from Him. He will lay it down for you and for me. But what Matthew, of course, is really occupied with here is the betrayal by Judas, which takes up Verses 3 to verse 10. Most of you, I hope, have read The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, that is your assignment beginning this afternoon to go home and find a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress and to read it. And I know the language is old and it can be a little hard to follow at times. There are actually even updated uh, copies with updated wording, but it's a classic among believing people for good reason. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic allegory, he tells near the end of the tale, the first half of it anyway, about a man that the Christian pilgrim meets on his journey. And the man is called Ignorance. He's called ignorance not because he lacks knowledge of the truth, but because he is willfully 
rejecting of the truth that's been given to him. And he had joined Christian and hopeful for a little bit of time on their path to the celestial city. But though he too seemed to be a fellow pilgrim, when it came to come to the gate actually of heaven, the gate of the celestial city, and he he knocked at the gate and the people at watch at the gate looked down and they said, you know, where have you come from? What do you want? And the answer that ignorance gave was, well, I ate and drank in the presence of the king of this city. And the king of this city taught in the streets of my own town. And I just thought that he would receive me. But when he was asked for his certificate of salvation at the very gates of heaven, he fumbled around and was left speechless. The message was sent to the king who refused to even come and meet ignorance at the gate. Instead, he sent two of his shining ones to escort ignorance to a door in the side of a hill through which ignorance was cast. And John Bunyan ends the Pilgrim's Progress with these words, Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. And if anyone was ever characterized by that statement, it was Judas. Judas Iscariot, who was so close, as it were, to the gates of heaven, to the very Lord God on earth, and yet walked away. This is a most sobering passage, to be sure. Because Judas was the recipient of an incredible grace, unusual grace from God. More benefit than almost anybody in human history. Greater privilege did this man experience. And all of those privileges and opportunities that were extended to him were genuine opportunities. In other words, the fault for their not becoming effective in him lay entirely upon himself. I mean, just think about the spiritual privileges that this man had. He walked and talked with the very Son of God in human flesh. He traveled with Him. He overnighted with Him. He ate countless meals together where He sat literally a few feet away across the table from God. He heard the Son of Man speaking. Judas listened to every sermon that Jesus ever preached. He sat under all of those teachings. He listened to all of those parables, some of which were really directed to Him. He listened to the warnings that our Lord gave. 
And he heard the invitations again and again that our Lord made. Come to me, all you who labor. Was there nothing in Judas that was moved by that? Let him who is thirsty come. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Judas heard it all. He heard those words that so transformed the lives of other people, turned their lives upside down, but for him, they were just mere words that went in one ear and out the other. And though outwardly he was a follower of the Lord Jesus, he remained in his heart an unbeliever. And I wonder how many sermons you and I have heard in our time, maybe not directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus, but the very words of Christ nonetheless, right? How many sermons, how many scripture readings, how many invitations to give your life to Jesus Christ have you heard in the course of your life? Are you yet unconverted? You know, the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, the writer talks about uh, a plot of land, a, a, a field, a farm, that even though it gets an abundant amount of rainfall, yet it fails to bring forth a good crop. So that the lack of fruit cannot be blamed on the drought, but on something else. And that land is good for nothing, he says, but to be burned over. And he makes this conclusion. He says, so, listen, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God, it's impossible, he says, for people like that who continue to taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, he says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Hebrews chapter 6. Such a man was Judas, a real man who lived and walked this earth just as surely as you are walking it now, all these many years later, who heard the words of Christ, who tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, but he hardened his heart. We do know a little bit about Judas in his inner self, what was going on in his mind that he thought, and in his life in a secret way that he thought no one else knew. We know that from the Scriptures. Um, one of his besetting sins was covetousness. John tells us, I think Luke as well, that he kept the money bag, right? And that he would help himself. The, the disciples to the disciples' money. He would pilfer from the from the accounts. And 
Perhaps this began when he was a little child, taking things that did not belong to him, continued stealing all through his teens, a little bit here and a little bit there. In any case, whenever it started, this was a long-standing secret habit that Judas thought that no one else knew anything about. This is a hidden part of him. This is a part that he thought was under wraps. Everybody looking at him, no one could see through it. And maybe one of you, maybe one of you in here this morning is harboring some secret sin in your life and indulging in that sin in an unrepentant way, thinking that no one knows, your parents don't know, your spouse doesn't know, pastor doesn't know. Maybe there is somebody here who is coddling a sin, holding it close to your chest, not knowing that that thing is a viper, friends, that will one day be the death of you. Such a man was Judas for three and a half years. He heard the admonitions of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You don't need to worry about what you're going to eat or drink or put on. Your heavenly Father will take care of all of those things. And somehow those words just did not register in this man's mind and in his heart and in his conscience. He sat there for three and a half years listening to Jesus say things like, you know, a man's life does not consist in the things that he possesses. He heard Jesus tell the story of the, the parable of the rich fool and on the, 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 in the story, the Lord comes to that man and says, you fool today, tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. Then whose will all these things be? But Judas, whether he rationalized these things away or whether they just kind of didn't make any impact at all, whether he dismissed them, whether he tried to excuse himself from every time that the Lord was saying something like that, in some way or another, he, he managed to live those three and a half years under Jesus' constant ministry like this without being transformed without heeding those warnings. He listened to Jesus issue warnings like many will say in the last day, Lord, Lord. And the Master will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. you you got to wonder, did, did Judas ever think in his heart of hearts, what if that's me? Did he ever even stop to imagine that he might be one of those people? Or did the words merely just fly past his ears? Of him it is truly said that hearing he did not hear. And I am burdened by the thought that, that there may be one of us, maybe someone here today, who is not hearing 
even though you're sitting there and I watch you. And I look, I'm looking at your face right now. I'm looking into your eyes every week. I see you occupying that seat. And I hear you come and you converse with other people here. You make small talk. And you come and you go week after week. But is there anyone here who maybe is just this kind of person? And my prayer this week has been that maybe today, for the very first time ever, you'll really hear. You'll really hear. Now this is such a burden on my heart. I used to think in my younger days of ministry that there would never be any kind of person like that in my church. As far as I knew, everybody was a as a believer that, that was a member of the church, been baptized. But I've lived long enough and watched enough people come and go to be wary of ever taking for granted the true spiritual state of the person who's sitting in the pew. So I plead with you today to hear, hear, really hear. Examine your heart. Judas so dismissed the teachings of our Lord and so hardened his heart, so kept on with his double life that he really opened himself up to the devil himself. Luke and John tell us both that Satan actually entered into Judas the night in which he was betrayed. And the devil himself literally took possession of this man, using him as a human host from which to attack the Lord Jesus. And remember, Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Because Peter was a true child of God. And a true child of God cannot be possessed by a demon when he is possessed by the Almighty. But it is true that while the devil cannot be everywhere at once like the Lord, that he certainly did find a home in the heart of that wicked man that night. And it is instructive, I think, to see that not all demon possession is manifested in the ways that we think of. When you think of someone who is demon-possessed, Maybe you think of someone with unusual, almost superhuman strength or who speaks with strange voices or who acts in a bizarre fashion. But that is not the picture that we have of Judas here. Judas, from all outward manifestation, seems still to be a rational person looking after his own self-interest. But friends, a person like that could become possessed, overpowered, and controlled by an evil spiritual being. This man was a prisoner, a willing prisoner in his own body that night. And what a fall 
this was. This man went from being companion to the incarnate Son of God to repudiation and betrayal. Theologians call this apostasy. Apostasy is a word that means a rebellion against something that you know something that you were a part of, an abandonment, a defection, a deconversion, if you will. And the reality, of course, is that the reality is not that Judas lost his salvation, but that he never had it. John, I think, makes this clear when he speaks about people like Judas, whom he calls anti-Christs. You can't think of a a more anti-Christ than Judas. In fact, turn there, if you will, just for a moment, to 1 John chapter 2. Hold your finger in Matthew 27, but this is an important passage to see. 1 John 2. Verse 18. 1 John 2.18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. It's the end times. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming in the end times, John says, so now he's here. In fact, there are many Antichrists that have come. Judas being one of them. Therefore, John says, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they, talking about these anti-Christ apostates, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain, that it might be apparent, that it might be manifest, that they are not of us. In other words, what John is saying is that an an, an antichrist, an apostate person, is never part of the true people of God. But for a period of time, they do associate with the true people of God but their failure to continue, their failure to persevere in the faith is what makes it plain, what makes it apparent that they were never truly saved. They were really never a part of us even though they were with us. And that's exactly the case with Judas. He was with that apostolic company. He was, a, uh, he was associated with the disciples. He, he claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but in fact, the truth was that for all of those years, he was living a double life, a hypocritical life. And in his heart, he was never truly converted. And I wonder how many young people, how many young people who've grown up in church like I did, maybe even made a confession of faith, who were baptized. And yet when they got older, when they're old enough to make their own decisions and have their own car and make their own way in life, they left the church. 
And they began to live openly and unrepentantly in sin with no desire for the things of God. It is not that they lost their salvation, but that given time and greater freedom to do what they actually wanted all along, they proved that they were never really converted to begin with. Scripture points to three main things that make unbelief plain, as John says here. Three temptations that would lead a person to apostatize. If you look at the various warnings of the Scripture, you begin to put these things together. Number one, temptation. Temptation to sin. The temptation to give up fighting sin. To finally come to a point where a person would say, you know what? This is just who I am. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm tired of always trying to do the right thing. I just don't care anymore. And temptation becomes not something that they're repentant about, but something that they embrace. Or false doctrine. False doctrine comes along and this person embraces heresy. He leaves the orthodox Christian faith, the the basic fundamental truths of the gospel, and embraces a false doctrine. And that becomes the testimony that they never truly believed the truth and were deeply changed by it. Or thirdly, persecution comes and manifests the fact that their faith was only very shallow, that that they were not truly deeply converted by the power of God. Remember, Jesus used that as an illustration uh, in the parable of the soils. He talked about the soil that was very shallow over a rocky base, and the seed falls on that soil, and it springs up immediately, but it withers when the bright burning sun comes out. It scorches that plant, and it dies. And Jesus said, this is like the person who endures tribulation and persecution because of the Word, and when he does, he falls away from his faith. He he moves back. He apostatizes from his confession of faith in Christ. And Judas... This is characteristic of Judas. Judas, on the one hand, was eaten up with covetousness and theft and hypocrisy and duplicity. And he was also externally facing the pressure of the imminent capture of the Lord and the danger of persecution, not only for the Lord, but for himself and his fellow disciples, and so he shows his true colors. He manifests his unbelief and fully and finally turns away from the Lord that he once claimed to follow. And this passage, this passage describes the end of such a person. You know, in Psalm 73, the psalmist there, this is one of my favorite psalms, the psalmist there is severely tempted. Remember, he looks around at the ungodly around him, and he sees ungodly people prospering, doing well, living life lives of ease, having everything go well for them. And he looks at them, and then he looks at his own suffering and his own difficulties in life, and he says, "It's I don't know if it's worth it to be a Christian. I don't know if it's worth it to be one of the, the people of God. 
And he's almost at the point of just abandoning his faith, of becoming so embittered in his spirit that he becomes an apostate. He says, my feet had almost slipped. But then he says this, in Psalm 73, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, how to make sense of the prosperity of the wicked and the, and the troubles of the righteous, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He saw the end of such a life. Not the present but the bitter end. He saw that through eyes of faith in the words of God. And he says, verse 18, Truly, you, that is you, God, have set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You have made them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And that, friends, is a summary of the end of the life of Judas, if ever there was one in Scripture. Back to Matthew 27. How did Judas' life end? Well, number one, in the end, he was tortured by guilt, but yet was unable to repent. He was a man tortured by guilt, Remorse and regret, but unable to repent. Notice verse 3. This is, this is really remarkable. Verse 3 says that he changed his mind about what he had done. Right? Now, some of you may be aware that the Greek word for repentance is made up of a couple of words. One has to do with a change and the other has having to do with your mind. But this is not the normal word that's used in the Scripture for repentance. Repentance, which is a full-fledged change of disposition. This word could probably be used toward that or as an element of repentance, but this word has a more emotional connotation. It's a word that means that you look back on something that, that happened in your life in the past. Is look, you look back on something that you did with regret with remorse. It brings a kind of heaviness to your heart. Everybody in here has experienced that at one point in your life, right? You look back on something in your life with great sadness and regret. And I just want you to know, friends, that it is possible for someone to feel remorse and regret and still not be truly converted. There are people who for years have persisted in unrepentant sin, all the while appearing to be Jesus' disciples. They have sinned against all warning and caution, sitting under sermon after sermon after sermon, only in the end to find that when it really costs someone else their life, then they finally look back with regret or when their actions and their life has finally caused some cost someone else their happiness or their marriage 
then they are filled with remorse. And they have the feelings come over them, finally, that they should have had all along. But now it's too late. Because the thing is done. And notice that Judas, even it says in the text, brought back the 30 pieces of silver. And when they would not take it, he threw it down. He just, he was so filled with anxiety about what he had done, he just couldn't even hold on to this money anymore. And on the surface, of course, that looks a, a little bit like repentance. It looks a lot like what Zacchaeus did. Remember when he had cheated people and he came down and he said, I'll give back uh, more than what I stole. You, you see Judas even making a confession, a verbal confession of his guilt to the scribes and the chief priests. He says to them, verse 4, I have sinned by shedding innocent blood. In the end, you know that a wicked person might even confess his wrongdoing, but never really run to Christ. An apostate may acknowledge that Jesus was, in fact, an innocent man, a good man, a noble man, a heavenly prophet. Maybe even confess with his mouth and with his lips that Jesus is the Son of God, but have a heart that really is still far from Christ. He was filled with remorse, you see, but unable to find peace. He was so tortured with guilt, the Bible says, that he went out that night and hanged himself. What an end to the life of this man. And you know, it's, I think the way that Matthew puts the story of Peter at the end of chapter 26, and his um, denial of Jesus, right next to the account of Judas, should give us pause to reflect, to compare and contrast these two men. right? Because in many ways, they committed the same sin, essentially. right? Peter says, I don't know him. He even cursed, brought down a curse upon himself. You know, uh, may a curse be on me if I, if I know this man. By heaven and earth, I swear I don't know him. And here is Judas also betraying the Lord, giving him over, turning his back on him, giving him over to his enemies. In many ways, their sins were similar. Last week, I titled the sermon, The Downfall of a Disciple. This morning's sermon is titled, The End of an Apostate. Both of these men felt Guilt, right? They both felt remorse. The Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly that night. And here is Judas also that very night running out in anguish of soul. But one of them is a child of God. And the other is a, quote, son of destruction. Historically, theologians have made a distinction between attrition and contrition. Attrition is that occasional remorse and regret that we will have for our wrongdoing. A fear of punishment, of judgment, or a fear of losing some benefit or happiness. 
And it may, in the end, just lead a person to despair over the feelings of guilt and the impossibility of ever being free from them. But contrition, true repentance, is seen in the great repentant psalm of David, Psalm 51. If you want to know, but guys, friends, if you want to know what true repentance looks like, I can't think of any better place to just hunker down and meditate for a while than the 51st Psalm. What does true repentance looks like? Well, there's a sense of having offended God Himself, that your offense is against God and His holy character. David said in verse 4 of that passage, against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, it's not that David is diminishing his sins against Bathsheba and her husband and, and others in their family, but, but that in comparison with, with his sin against God, his transgression of God and his holiness and his law, nothing else, nothing else mattered. That was... The, the, the thing that was foremost in his mind, and it is the foremost in the mind of those who are truly penitent. The, the person who's filled with contrition acknowledges that God would be just to punish him. He's not arguing against that. He's not trying to get out of it. David said, your judgment is just. You are justified in your words against me. You are blameless in your judgment, O Lord. Contrition is thirdly characterized by an admission of utter depravity rather than a rationalizing or blame-shifting. As David said, in iniquity I was brought forth. I am a sinner by birth. And finally, true contrition and repentance is sorrow that drives a person not from God, but to God. And that really is the key here. David begins that psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. His contrition drives him to God because he knows that God is a God of grace. And for someone who pretends to be a Christian while all along rejecting the continued admonitions of the Scripture and secretly harboring and cherishing his sin, he may come to the point where he cannot, no longer, where he cannot truly repent of his sin. I want you to hear that again. For a person who goes on rejecting the continued admonitions in Scripture, he may be a person, become a person who is unable to repent. Because the Bible teaches that repentance is not at its very root a humanly possible activity. In other words, that the human will is involved in repentance and that a person is responsible to repent the Bible also teaches that repentance is a gift from God. Paul tells this uh, to us in First Timothy, in Second Timothy, in chapter two. He's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he tells Timothy about a certain kind of, of person who is quote captured in the snare of the devil and made captive to do the devil's will. 
of any of all the people in the world that that describes, it had to have described Judas. Captured by Satan to do his will. And he says, you don't need to strive with that kind of person, but keep faithfully, firmly, clearly giving him the truth. And then he says this, God may perhaps give him repentance. God may perhaps grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, he's saying here, repentance, Timothy, is a gift from God. And it's a gracious gift. It's, it's, it's a gift of God's mercy. God doesn't owe this to anybody. You can't force God's hand in this re- regard. In other words, this ought to really, friends, keep any person from ever saying to himself, you know what? I can just keep sinning for a while. I can keep holding on to this for a while. And someday down the road, when I'm good and ready, then I'll repent. No, friend, you may, you may get to the point where you are unable to repent. Unwilling, unable, that you just don't have it. You will, if God doesn't do this work in you, if He just finally says, okay, you want to go your own way? You want to go your own way? You've resisted all of the appeals that I have laid out before you, and fine, I will just let you go your own way. I will never speak to you again. And that person is beyond hope. And every person in this room ought to be fearful of ever, ever getting to that point in your life. That person may even experience great remorse, but have sinned so much that God does not grant repentance. The Bible talks about Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, who afterwards desired to inherit the blessing, but wasn't what was uh, uh, but he found, quote, no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There were tears in his face. There was an emotional regret and remorse, but there was not a real true repentance there. John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress again. Uh, earlier in the book, he talked about a time when Christian had come through the wicket gate and he entered into the house of interpreter. Remember that scene? And the interpreter was a man who showed him all kinds of spiritual truths through vignettes, pictures, in one room after another in his house. And every room was, was a new image to teach him something about his journey. And in that home, Christian was led at one point to a very, very dark room. And there in that room was an iron cage and there was a man, a prisoner, inside that iron cage. And that man was in despair. His eyes were to the ground. And then Christian said to the man, What art thou? And the man said, I am what I was not once. And Christian answered, What wast thou once? And the man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. What he means is a professor of faith. I was a fair and flourishing professor, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I thought I was a Christian. Everybody else thought I was a Christian. 
I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city, and it even had the joy, joy of the thoughts that I should get thither. And Christian replied, Well, what art thou now? And the man said, I am now a man of despair, and I am shut up in it as an, in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian asked, Well, how didst thou come? in this condition. And the man replied, I left off. I stopped watching. I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. Did you get the picture there? I gave my lusts free reign. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I have tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. I have crucified to myself afresh the Son of God. I have despised His person. I have despised His righteousness. I have counted His blood an unholy thing. I have done despite to the Spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And now there remains nothing to me but all threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. And the interpreter stepped in to ask, well, what did bring yourself into this condition? And the man answered, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of the world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight, but now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Right? What does the Bible say? There is pleasure in sin, what? For a season. The interpreter said, And canst thou not now turn and repent? And the man said, God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself hath shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity! How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? An interpreter said to Christian, Let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. And that is my prayer, that not only that man, but this man in this Scripture, this real man who lived and heard the words of the Savior and never let them get into his heart, that he would be an everlasting caution for you and for me. There was actually a good friend of John Bunyan's, a man by the name of John Child. He was born in 16, around 1638, and by the age of 18, he was an active member in Bunyan's church, the Bedford Meeting. And several times, he was chosen by the church to go visit um, in church discipline situations. They considered him to be a true believer and, in fact, a, a godly man. He was involved at least once or twice in debates with false teachers. In 1658, he left the church over disagreements. 
and joined another Baptist church in London. And there he uh, had opportunities to teach in the church. He even actually represented the church in their associational meetings. Around 1674, the pastor of that assembly died, but child, to his disappointment, was not invited to become the new pastor. Well, a couple of years later, he left that church too, and he went on to another small London Baptist congregation where he became the pastor, but before long, the church dismissed him as their pastor. And over time in the life of John Child, there began to be a manifest change, an outward change. He began to demonstrate a love for money and safety and unbelieving company and prestige in the social community more than he loved Christ. He grew also increasingly bitter over the fact that churches had not been accepting of his ministry. And he began as well to feel the increasing pressure from the state to conform to the state church. As you know, of course, Bunyan ended up in prison because of his dissenting views. Baptists, among others, were considered dissenters and were subject to persecution. And so, to continue in the dissenting churches would mean to lose any ministry income which child apparently loved and to face the threat of prison. So he began to describe himself differently. He called himself a latitude man, a broad church proponent. He began to try to demonstrate his loyalty to the state by writing a book to try to convert the dissenters back to the state church. In that book, he also sharply criticized John Bunyan. But by 18, but by, excuse me, 1682, Child was so bitter that he had almost completely stopped attending worship of any kind. He wrote a, another book that was filled with slanders against his former friends. Later, he actually admitted that he had done it out of malice, knowing that these things were false and he did it against the light of his own conscience. And he was soon just plunged into a deep despair and began to find himself in just a severe depression over what he knew he had done. He called it a great horror of soul, quote unquote. His wife suggested that he try to get counsel from the very pastors that he had slandered, those who were his former friends. And he did so. He met with a number of Baptist leaders at the time, Bunyan and Keach and Collins. And one of them wrote this, quote, I found him, that his child, in a very pensive posture with eyes red with tears. He immediately acknowledged that he was the author of the book and bitterly exclaimed against himself that he wrote it in malice and by the instigation of the devil from very ill principles of pride and vainglory and hypocrisy. He freely described the grief of his mind 
expressing his condition to be most deplorable as having no hope of salvation, I laid before him with the greatest tenderness and freeness the riches of Christ's grace, but he could fasten no word of but I could fasten no word of hope upon him. Such was his despair that he actually tried to take his own life. And his wife stepped in and stopped him. But while she slept on October the 13th, 1684, he made a leather strap and went down into his basement and did just like Judas did and hanged himself. Brothers and sisters and friends, you know, I don't know how long the Lord will be patient with any man. I cannot predict when a person has crossed the line to go from being potentially a Peter who comes to repent and come back to Christ and be restored to really being, at least from a human perspective, when he crosses the line to being a Judas, to a person who is beyond hope. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Whether in this life or the next, that is the end of an apostate. And you know, this is not just some ancient um, psychological struggles that reformed types went through. This is uh, something that hits very close to home. I think about people that I've had close contact with through the years. At least a couple of folks came to my mind who used to attend this church and sit in these pews who now no longer name the name of Christ. I think with a heavy heart of a young man who went to our Christian school years ago, made a confession of faith, and didn't get in a lot of trouble, as I remember, outwardly. I think his grandmother, or his mother, I'm not sure, was a believer. And, uh, you know, she tried to make him do the right thing. But when he got, when he graduated from high school, he decided to go into the military. And he went there for a while. And, um, you know, there he found a place where he was not under the constraints of his home and of his school and of his church. And he was able to exercise freely the lusts of his heart. And by his own testimony, he did so. He just let his own lust run rampant in his life for a good number of years. And then a number of years ago, he called me up on the phone and said, Pastor John, I don't know if you remember me. He said, I want you to pray for me. He said, I am struggling. I'm just, and he described an anguish of his soul. And one of the most poignant comments he made was this, pray for me, Pastor I don't know if I can even believe anymore. My hope, even now, is that that young man will be restored like a Peter. 
but there is a great warning in the Scripture for anyone who names the name of Christ as living a double life of hypocrisy and sin, unrepentant. Listen, let this not be you. And you know, many times there are people who have companions who enable them in their sin. And Judas was such a man. Evil companions who accompany or even enable their wrongdoing. And number two, we see in that in the end, the wicked are abandoned by their companions in sin. What is the end of an apostate? In the end, the wicked are abandoned by their companions in sin. After Judas poured out his soul with anguish to these chief priests and the elders, verse 4, the Bible says, they said to him, what? What is that to us? You deal with your own issues. Right? Such callousness on the part of these. He just, he is just expressed that his heart is broken about this. He, he's torn up. He feels this huge weight of guilt. He's poured out his soul to these people who were supposed to be his spiritual advisors. And yet they were so callous with no concern over his desperate spiritual need. They got what they wanted out of that relationship, right? And I tell you what, friend, if your sinful companions, listen to me, young people, all of us, those sinful companions, those people who are lying for you, those people who are enabling your sin, those people who are partners in your lust, remember this, remember this, that the people who are sinning with you now will just as surely sin against you when the opportunity comes. The young person who is lying for you now will just as surely lie about you when it's convenient. The man or woman who seems to care about you now, though you are both married to someone else, will in the end find it just as easy to betray you as it was to betray their own spouse. And that's exactly what these people did. They didn't care about Judas. They didn't care about his soul. They weren't going to stand up with him when things went south. They're in it for themselves. And in the end, sinners will find themselves alone. There will be no party in hell with all of your best friends. Rather, a place where every man is tortured in his own selfishness. And Judas could have opened up. He could have. He, he had this company of good friends who would speak truth to him. And, and in their own failing way, they would help him and they would pray for him and they would share one another's burdens. He could have befriended Peter or James or John or any of this company. But in the end, he turned his heart to those who would do wrong. And in the end, he found himself alone. That is the end of an apostate. And lastly, in the end, he could never escape the God he fought against. In the end, he found that he could actually never escape that God, though he actively fought against him. After, remember, after he throws down the money in the temple, he, he, he ran out 
And the, 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 the members of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the chief priests and the others, they picked up this money and they said, listen, it's not lawful for us to put the money into the treasury since it is blood money. Deuteronomy 23 had prohibited the use of any ill-gotten gain for the furtherance of the temple. And so you just have to stop and think how amazingly legalistic people can be, how self-righteous they can be, even while living in a, a duplicitous life. That Talk about swallowing the camel while straining the gnat. These people are, it's not right for us to give the money because we paid that as a bribe to murder this man. So we won't put it in the temple treasury. So instead they used the money to buy a burial ground for people who died unexpectedly on their journey to Jerusalem without any family or any means of support. And Matthew says, notice this, this is the way this, this paragraph ends. Matthew says that this was a specific fulfillment of ancient prophecy which he attributes to Jeremiah. And of course, some of the wording does come from Jeremiah. Some of it also comes from Zechariah. It's attributed to Jeremiah because he's the more prominent of the prophets. He quotes Jeremiah and Zechariah and says, this is exactly what God predicted all along would happen. Exactly what would happen. The betrayal would happen. Even the amount for which he would be betrayed and the use to which that money would be put is all been predicted in the Scriptures. In other words, friends, listen, a person might think that he is getting away with sin, that it is covered, that it is not known, that no one sees, no one knows, but in the end, he will realize that God saw it all from ages past. You can never escape the God who knows all things. As Moses said to Israel, be sure your sin will find you out. As Jesus said, nothing that is covered Will not be, uh, nothing that is covered up will not be revealed or hidden. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. All of his fighting against God and God's plan and God's purpose, in the end, it was all futile. You know, when is that line crossed? When is that line crossed from someone's being a Peter? to becoming a Judas. From being someone who may fall and repent and be restored to being someone who is completely apostate from the Word, from the Lord. When is that line crossed? Has it been crossed? Only God knows. But I leave you this morning with the warnings of the Scripture. Hear, hear, hear it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's how we know that we have come to share in Christ. We know that we have been saved. 
by that persevering repentance and faith in Christ. So today, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I want to ask you this this morning. Do you hear God's voice today? Do you hear his voice of warning? Do you hear his voice of conviction? If so, then perhaps it's not too late for you. Perhaps today may be the day of your salvation. Perhaps the day may be the day that you come back to God. Where you say, God, I'm coming home. Take me back. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Forgive me of my sin. Lord, set me back on the right path. And so you would prove not to be a Judas. And in the end would find yourself restored to the gracious Savior. I pray that that will be true for you today. Let's take a moment and consider this text with heads bowed and eyes closed. Forget your friend sitting beside you. Forget that person around you, what your husband or wife will think of you. Listen listen to me, friend. Every one of us will stand alone before God one day. Before the judgment of the Almighty. How is it with you? Are you right with God? Is there a true repentance in your heart for your sin? Or are you holding on to it and coddling it and just thinking, well, maybe I'll repent someday down the road? Do you think you're getting away with something? Listen to me, friends. God knows. God sees in your mind and your heart. Knows what's really going on when you're away from all of the constraints that are on you externally. I ask you today, examine your heart. Examine yourself. See whether you be in the faith. Heavenly Father, please do a work in our hearts. Please hear the prayers of those who are contrite this morning. 